Welcome to Untangling Christianity, episode number 28. On this show, John and Greg attempt to diffuse destructive ideologies, unsnarl confused ideas, consider love and truth in Christianity. We hope you'll come along for the conversation, and you can be part of that conversation by leaving comments at the website, untanglingchristianity.com slash 28. You'll also find related notes and links for this episode at the same place. We're here to discuss another chapter of Not a Fan by Kyle Edelman. Today finds us in chapter 12 titled, Wherever, What About There? And we start off with Luke nine twenty three. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Then things kind of go from there. He he moves on to the section in, I guess it's verse 58. I'm assuming that's still Luke 9. Yeah. Uh, they were walking along the road, and a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And then Kyle proceeds to build an entire chapter around the notion that we are to go wherever Jesus wants us to go and that it won't be comfortable. Did I get that right? Yeah. Sounds a little, sounds very inviting. So, <laughs> and by the way, when you go, this this is at the top of 175. When you go, it's important he says, quote, but as you step across the line and commit to being a follower, the, it's important to understand and think through the personal and more practical implications, which I would tend to agree with. I don't agree with his notion of follower and fan and stepping across the line and committing and all that. But what I thought was even more, I don't know, confusing or sad is on page 180, about halfway down the page, he says, Jesus wants followers who will say yes to him before they even know the request. The follower of Jesus says, my answer is yes. Now, where did you want me to go? Jesus may point to Burma or he may point across the street. Mm. Now, maybe I'm taking that out of context. It's possible. But it not... does seem a little confused to in one point in one part, and I think we've seen this in other chapters of the book, you gotta really count the cost and and be deliberate about what you're signing up for. And maybe maybe this isn't quite the same. Maybe in on one eighty it's that you've already committed and, and that wherever Jesus says to go, you're just gonna go without questioning or thinking about it. I don't know. No, I, th- I, th- I think you made a pretty good point there. I, I think he's he's I think he's having a hard time with consistency because his his message is, as I, you know, I've said on a number of occasions, he's jumping over main ideas, main notions, main directives or priorities, if you like, for Christians, such as loving God, loving yourself and loving your neighbor as yourself. And if these things, if he hasn't set these up, not just not just acknowledge them, but said this is how they all work out, because these are higher priorities than taking up your cross. They actually are. I mean, unless we think that Jesus got it wrong. You know, what is the greatest commandment? The greatest commandment wasn't pick take up your cross. I mean, Jesus could have said that, right? Mm-hmm. Why, why why not? So if he didn't, then it isn't. And that's why I think he's, there's so much confusion here. 
You know, he's got to make this, uh, as you said a lot before, it's about pain. It's about hurt. And if it don't hurt, it ain't right. It's not working. You're not making it. You're not, you're not following the right path or doing it the right way. Well, I feel like the, the notion, too, with this whole verse about, you know, foxes have no holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. It doesn't say it here, but it seems to flow from the rest of the chapter. It's the notion that yes is always the right answer, you know, and mm. and so whenever God calls us, no matter what, the answer is yes. To which I say, how do you define God calling you? Is that calling different for every person? To which I would say, yes, it is. Mm-hmm. Unlike this book that would tend to say, no, you know, God only calls in certain ways and it involves pain. So if there's no pain involved, then you haven't been called, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is backwards. Yeah, this chapter, I think that, you know, the question of the chapter is wherever, what about there is this notion that we're just, we're just quote called or we're supposed to just go wherever Jesus sends us. And he doesn't really say it, but then, well, the end of the last chapter was all about, you know, experiencing true life, which Mm -hmm. is completely ambiguous and not defined at all. But I think it's this grand notion that we all just kind of think we know what it is, but we don't. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yes, overall, uh, just another chapter that uh, tries to stand on this one verse and I don't think does very well. Well, I think we need to burrow down a little bit because, you know, as you, I, I completely agree. I'm, I'm agreeing more and more with you. I, I would be very surprised if any other verse becomes dominant between now and the end of the book. Hmm. You know, this this notion of following, right? The whole book is about following. And so what I did is I've looked through uh, a couple of commentaries that I have here. I've got one really uh, commentary I appreciate. It's a social science commentary of the Synoptic Gospel, so it touches Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And um, it's by Bruce Molina, who's done some really good work on the notion of honor and shame in uh, antiquity. So in the first century Palestine, the dominant sort of um, orientation, social orientation, was around the, these notions of honor and shame, wanting honor, seeking honor, protecting honor, avoiding shame, rejecting shame, pushing back against shame. And the other uh, commentary I have is a a very large substantial uh, academic contra- uh, commentary uh, by R.T. France, who is a big New Testament uh, scholar. And um, so what I did is I looked at 923, and then he's talking later on page, well, right, right into it, on page 176, second page of the chapter, uh, about this, uh, well, I guess on the first, on 175 and 176, he's uh, talking about uh, Luke verses, one, verses 57 through, I think, 59. I'm just grabbing my got too many books here on this small little table. Um, so a couple of things struck me. If we're good to go in that direction, do it. Okay. So um, first of all, this notion of follow, and I want to just bring this out. I'm going to kind of weave a trail. Okay. Uh, first of all, on. Um, this is the social science commentary. This is Molina who's talking about honor and shame and also talks about this idea 
we talked about it a lot. Um, say Luke 8, 19 to 21, you know, your, your mother and your brothers are here to see you. Who is my mother and who is my brother but those who, who hear the word of God and do it? And so there's this notion of um, what Melina, the author here, calls a fictive kin group. What he means is you get a new family. Now, this sounds a little radical to us. In the first century, this would be impossibly radical. The idea that you're moving outside of your family group or you're abandoning your family group. And when we look at the examples, uh, the situations at the end of Luke 9 that Jesus is dealing with when he's talking to these two people, family is very important. It's very prominent. The reality was that family was where you identified yourself. It's where you gained your honor and your security. It's you, you protected the family against negative things, against shameful things. Shame, honor, and shame was almost like your credit in that society. You didn't have credit cards. If you're an honorable person, well, sure, you can, you can take that and you can pay me back later. Uh, if you're not an honorable person, no, you can't have that. You pay for that with money. You don't get it because you're not honorable. You know, and so you can see that in certain situations, that might actually mean putting food on the table or not. It might mean an awful lot. Um, so in these situations, in beginning with uh, Luke 9.57, I'll just read it out. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have no nests, but the man, son of man has nowhere to lay his head. That's the first one. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts a hand on the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So all of these examples have, have everything to do with, um, with family, with home, with uh, a sense of belonging and um, you know, the first one about the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests is not simply about, as uh, our friend Kyle tries to make it out on page 176, it's not just about, you know, you're not going to be able to, if you follow Jesus, you're not going to stay at the Ritz and be able to order room service. That, that's, it's much, much more than that. Much, much more than that. So what this author says, I'm just going to read from, from this, just a sentence. In all three of these exchanges about following Jesus, the issue of breaking with one's biological kin group and social network is is key. So that's what these people are doing. So it's not the notion that Jesus says to, well, in this situation, Jesus isn't explicitly telling them to follow him. These people are saying they want to follow him. But I, I'm surprised that he, these that Kyle didn't latch onto these verses, which is you know basically shine everyone else on and follow me because that's what it's going to. That's what it comes down to. Pretty much. That's I how mean, much I'm, in other words, he would say, you know, that's what Jesus demands of us. You can't be halfway. So yeah, don't, don't bury your, your father, your family member. I mean, I'm more important. I matter more. Kind and of. you matter less. So get on board. Well, kind of, I think that would be kind of his, his Kyle's. Yeah. I'm surprised he wouldn't have, 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 have emphasized that because that's kind of his deal. I don't think that's quite what's going on in these verses. Um, and I'm going to look at them first, like a little micro shot here. And then I want to flip into these verses also occur in Matthew. And this large commentary I have is for Matthew. The verses are identical in Matthew. So we're on pretty sure ground. 
looking at what Matthew has to say about those verses rather than looking at Luke. I think we're there's no problem there. I'll just this guy just touches on three points for each one of these three instances. So with the foxes and the birds, he says the first instance clarifies that followers will adopt what he calls a socially deviant lifestyle away from home. So one of the things you see, this is really cool. Uh, the first time the notion of follow is used in Luke is in Luke 5.11. This is with, with uh, the fishermen. They're in the boats and Jesus, or they're just mending their nets after fishing. Part of the issue with fishing, and the reason it had low social status, is because you fish early in the morning and late at night. What that meant was you're away from home. When you're away from home, you lose your status. That's where you're supposed to be. That's where things happen. That's that's part of what it is to be a person in this society. You're at home. You provide for, et cetera, et cetera, right? And it doesn't matter that fishermen are earning a living being away. So for us, you know, shift work is not a big deal. You're not sort of abandoning your family. You're doing the right thing because you got a job. Your job's at night. Oh well, you got to work. It doesn't work like that in the first century, and it's totally contradictory. But you're still viewed as having a lower status because even though you're earning a wage and you're feeding your family, you're not at home where you should be. And there's nothing you can do about that. So he's talking about this idea. It's socially deviant not to be, you know, focused at home. There was no such thing like this notion of uh, uh, itinerant uh, person uh, going on going around and doing a job. Everything was focused on the family and the community, right? You're, you're around at home. You, you, you farm. You live where you farm. You're a merchant. You live where you, you're, you're a merchant. You know, and I guess you're in a low-status situation if you're a mariner, you know, if you're, if you're on a ship all the time. That's not the best deal. It's not viewed very highly in that society because you're away from home. So it says in the second, the obligations of high importance to the family are rejected. This is the question of burying the father, which I've got more to say. There's actually a, a better way of viewing that, I think, uh, which, which comes out in this larger commentary. And in the third, the opportunity to ease the break is denied. So he's saying, let me just go and say goodbye to my home. And Jesus says, no, no, no. If you put your hand on the plow and turn back, you know, forget it. Now, when two things, I guess the first being the first time we see this notion of follow. So I think this notion of follow is really important. We see it in 511 with uh, Simon uh, and James and John. We see it in 527 and 28 with Matthew. Levi, the tax right? And I want to read what he has to say about this because I think it's quite important. He says, geographical mobility. So something that for us is like totally not, like everybody's got a car. Of course you're mobile, right? You've got to move around to be able to exist. Geographical mobility and the consequent break with one's social network, your biological family, your patrons, your friends, your neighbors, was considered seriously deviant behavior. And would have been much more traumatic in antiquity than simply leaving behind material wealth. So this whole thing that Jesus is doing, he's traveling all over the place. You know, he's getting in a boat. He's going from one place to another. Um, and that's exactly what's happening here in Luke, right? He's just about to get in a boat and go someplace. But doesn't this support Kyle's whole deal, though? It's radical. Following Jesus is radical. Well, I think there are some radical components to it. But but I think we have to really think twice about what those are. It's it's like going in and saying, you know, what is Isaiah saying to me? Well, Isaiah's really saying nothing to you. 
Isaiah wasn't written for you. What can we glean from this based on what Isaiah was saying to the people that Isaiah was writing to? Good question. So let's ask the right question. Let's orientate ourselves properly, because if we don't, we're just going to be thinking that, that somehow, you know, we're supposed to understand this from our perspective, and that's what it really means. Well, no. Geographical mobility and break with social network are seriously deviant behavior. It would have been, would have been even, you know, traumatic. So is, are there things about following Jesus that could be traumatic for us? Yes, I think there are. You know, but what those are, and are those the same, exactly what we're reading in the text? I, do, I really don't think so. So what do you think they are? Well, I guess if it were me, um, I would kind of put down a list of things that, um, on paper, that are the kind of non-negotiables societally. You know, what are they here? Like, in North America, in the beginning of the... Um, 21st century, what, what are they? Um, I mean, social status still has a big uh, impact. Um, and, I, and I think it's the controlling nature. I think the other thing that we see going on here is... Um, um, let me do this. Let me, I, I think I might be clearer if I read you a small section from what this guy has written in Matthew, the part, relevant parts in Matthew, so the same thing about foxes of the air, etc., is Matthew 8. Luke has three, three people that Jesus, that sort of come to Jesus and Jesus interacts with. Matthew has two, but he's doing the same, the same basic thing. Um, and the one to note is the last one about burying your, burying your father. Um, and I'm just going to read part of this. Um, what, what this guy is basically saying is, this is a, it's an idiomatic expression. Bury my father means I have to fulfill the duties of an elder son. I am the elder son. One of the things like the elder son would always do is bury the father. Um, and as, he, as this author notes, I'm going to read um, from his commentary about verse 21 and 22. If the father had just died, the son would hardly be on the roadside with Jesus. His place would be keeping vigil and preparing the funeral. Rather, to bury one's father is a standard idiom for fulfilling one's filial responsibilities for the remainder of the father's lifetime, with no prospect of his imminent death. It just means I have to do my duty. I have to do what I'm supposed to do as a Jew, right? Versus my father's literally died is literally just yeah. died, and I need to go to the funeral. Exactly, and what he's also mentioning above the section I, that I first that I just read is that you know this is that there's no there's no like uh, embalming fluids, there's no stuff like this. Like he's dead, he's buried, and it's done within 24 hours. It's an immediate thing. There's just no way to get around it. And Jesus isn't saying, hey, you know, forget all that. But what he is saying is really so. Really, really, really strong. It says so. Um, essentially, what what he's, this author writes: this would be a request for an indefinite postponement of discipleship, likely to be for years rather than days. In this case, Jesus' reply would be less immediately shocking. The man's proposed discipleship was apparently not very serious, but even so, Jesus' demand would still cut across deep-rooted cultural expectations. 
and the reference to those who can be left to fulfill the filial responsibility as being themselves the dead is harsh. So he's basically saying, hey, you know, if you're just going to do that, if, if that's what you want to do, leave the dead to bury the dead. You, you are, in other words, by making this choice, you are turning aside from the path of life. And, and he is putting everything in the dock. Everything is up for grabs. Everything about the way that uh, Jewish society is structured in all of these non-negotiables, all of these sacrosanct principles, aside from following God. And then what does following God really mean? Well, Jesus is trying to work that out with these people. He's trying to embody that. He's trying to teach that. And he's trying to contradict um, the errors and the misconceptions. So it's an incredibly harsh message, not the sort of thing that, you know, I can't wait one day for you. You know, I can't wait one minute for you to go and bury somebody that you love, but rather I can't. What you're saying amounts to prioritizing something over, over me. This notion that being a good son means doing what you're quote unquote supposed to do in a system that is claiming to be more important and more authoritative than um, the kingdom of God that I'm trying to establish. And then that's simply wrong. And I think that that is the perspective within which we have to examine what we do, what our society calls us to do. And by society, I don't just mean like I'm not just talking about secular society. I'm talking about Christian society, too. You know, so Christian society would say, go to church every Sunday. Well, maybe not. Maybe that's not what you need to do. Maybe part of you pursuing the kingdom of God is you saying, you know what, this is, this is, uh, uh, this is this, going to this church is crazy making. This whole church experience right now is crazy making for me. I'm going to dedicate to something. I'm interested in God or I'm interested in truth. And I'm not finding any of it at this church. And I'm not finding any of it in the, the churches that I've been to. And I'm kind of through with that. Uh, well, then I think you need to respect that and be careful that you don't let your priorities and the quote-unquote non-negotiables, culturally, subculturally, whatever, come in and take the place of what it is to be in um, right relationship with God and with focusing, you know, this, the, the Gospels talks about, you know, seek first the kingdom of God. You know, that's a huge priority. But it doesn't mean, you know, give up everything and be in pain. It does mean... <laughs> seek it first and make it the priority, right? Which is not immediately obvious. It's not sort of this, uh, uh, oh, that, that's very easy to understand sort of thing. I don't. Well, there's a, there's a difference between seeking something and seeking and, and the consequences of what you seek. Mm. So on page 182, he's talking about the, Basically, saying yes to following Jesus meant saying no means saying no to other things. And so he, he asked some friends or some missionaries or something, you know, what it meant to them. And they answer in kind of these one sentence things that saying yes to like one of them is saying yes to following Jesus meant saying no to retiring and moving to the home I was having built in Florida. And, and so it's kind of saying yes to Jesus meant that they didn't get something nice or comfortable and which he concludes by saying saying yes to fo saying yes to following Jesus meant saying no to comfort and 
I don't agree with that at all. I think it's kind of like, I don't know, trying to reverse engineer the, like, the, the, the goal is not to avoid comfort. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The, the goal is, would be, my mind would be to love others as yourself and love God. And yes, there may be pain involved in doing that, but mm-hmm. why? I don't know. Maybe I'm just saying what he just said here. I, I I just continue to wonder why, why does he keep reminding us that, that pain has to be involved? What, what? That's a great question. What do you think? I th- I feel like maybe it's part of his message is that people are too comfortable and that, you know, being a Christian and, quote, being a follower, which is a true Christian as opposed to a fan, which is a fake Christian, or I don't know, what do you call it? Um, <laughs> that it's, that there are going to be, there's going to be a cost involved. And this mm-hmm. is where I start to feel a little crazy because I feel like what you were just saying in, in the commentaries you're reading from is, there is going to be a cost involved. And so then I'd say, well, we mostly have disagreed with Kyle, but that would seem to back up Kyle's position. Yeah, but I I think that the cost is always um, born in relationship. You know, when when he says that, that, that comment on... Uh, 180, you know, Jesus wants followers to say yes before they even know, know the request. Like, that's, that's totally wrong-headed. That's totally wrong-headed. That means we're just a bunch of robots, like, with no... Yeah, and there's, there's already an, a relationship that exists there. I already understand what's going on in the sense that I am already in a love relationship with someone. You know, I... I <laughs> See, this is there's a cost of there's a cost of me not engaging with someone I love because my heart is there, my heart is with that person, and I lose part of me. I lose a sense of what it is to be me when I fail to engage. In other words, it's going to cost me something to engage, but it's also going to cost me something not to because the nature of the relationship is that's just the way it is. That's what happens when you're in love. You can't just close your eyes and say, you know, this really isn't working for me. Well, it really ain't going to work for you if you close your eyes, right? You're, you're, you're in a certain sense damned if you do and damned if you don't. And that's the negative way of looking at it. And I think that's one way, and it sometimes feels like that. But I think the positive way is of looking at it is engaging with this person is life-giving to me. Where this love is right and where this is a loving relationship that is focused on and uh, brings truth and 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 seeks truth then uh, which 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 you know this is the the kind of the core of I think the nature of our relationship with God then then yeah there are costs involved but there's not the greater cost of of lying to myself and saying you know this really isn't working I really don't like I don't really love God God doesn't really love me you know and and Again, for me, that would be lying to myself. For somebody else, that wouldn't be. For somebody else, they haven't experienced that. doesn't make any sense. Loving God, what are you talking about, right? For me, there's a degree of intellectual and, and um, ethical honesty that I have to maintain so that every time I find myself at a certain distance from God and I see myself backing away 
into a corner and saying, you know, this isn't really working. I'm really feeling a little bit worried about this. Da, 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 da. My first question is, so where are you with God on this? And, and if I can't come up with an answer that's, that's, if I don't have a sense of imminent security with the notion that essentially, you know, God's got my back here. I don't see that anywhere here. God doesn't have your back. Jesus wants followers who will say yes to him, page 180. Jesus wants followers who will say yes to him before they even know the request. That's not somebody who's got my back. I mean, that whole concept isn't brought out. That whole concept of what it means to be in right relationship with God before you ever do anything. You know, the whole idea of how God has made my life wonderful. Before there's any any question that my life might have to be uh Painful, difficult, traumatic, you know. My life's painful, difficult, and traumatic anyways. Right? I've got some problems in my life that aren't, you know, were there before God. God got, got, you know, I got in relationship with God. And uh, God's not necessarily going to take them away in that sense. But this is what just doesn't make any, any, any sense at all to me. Because he's, at, he's, it's like he's playing, con- we're, we're, we're drawing and it's connected dots. And he skipped like five or six dots to get to a place that, first of all, he skipped those dots. He's not really talked about what it means to have a meaningful relationship with God, why it means so much, what it is to be in love, what that does for me, and what it, what it does when I'm not. You know, and then, and then if I go back, if I look at, at my trajectory, if I put those five or six dots in line, his, his, his next dot, his seventh dot is like, What's it doing over there? How did you get over there, man? How did you get over there if you really do know these dots, but you just didn't take the time? If those really are significant in your life and you've grasped those and been grasped by them, how are you in this place of pain, self-denial, self-effacement? You know, uh, it's... Well, there's... Yeah, I don't even... I don't think relationship is a component. I feel like it's, it's all principles and duty and... The Bible says so, so you don't question it. You just do it. I mean, I'm looking at 185, which is kind of the conclusion of the chapter. The most literal way to define a follower of Jesus is someone who goes where Jesus goes. I'm not sure how you can call yourself a follower of Jesus if you refuse to go where Jesus went. If you are following Jesus wherever, he will take you towards a sinner that others wouldn't want to be seen with. You will find yourself among the sick that others tried to avoid. If you follow Jesus, expect to find yourself being criticized with some of the religious people in your life. If you follow Jesus, you may find your family thinks you're crazy. His did. You may find yourself fairly, unfairly accused and unjustly treated by those in a political office. Ultimately, if you follow Jesus wherever, you won't just get cover, end up covered in dust. You will end up covered in his blood. Dun dun dun! Dramatic conclusion. <laughs> Roll the credits. What on earth does that look like? So, to which I just kind of wrote, "Why does there have to be a destination? What about just being? What about just the notion of being, or being open, or um?" I don't, I don't know. I just, this whole notion of that you have to go somewhere and you have to look for where you're supposed to go to. You see, I, why can't is, you just be? Why can't I just 
be at work tomorrow and be open to opportunities to love another person. Uh, like, doesn't that. that count? Like, why? That's, that's totally it. That's totally it. That's, and that's why love is so so crucial. But when you're when you're putting yourself in the way of love towards other people, towards yourself, things that screw you up, you're gonna make choices that are stupid. I mean, this proximity between love and madness, right? When you love somebody, you do things that that in another scenario, people say, "What are you doing?" I mean, you're just like totally cutting yourself off here. You're undercutting yourself. You're, you're draining yourself. And I think this is what it is. It's this relationship, this, this, this prime motivator of, of love that puts us in this kind of space of being deviant relative to, you know, in first century, it's honor and shame. If you really love somebody, like if you really love that person, it doesn't matter what their status is. Well, it does matter. You can't love somebody whose status is lower. If you love somebody and you act towards somebody in a way, it's like, remember when uh, Jesus was, I think it was at Luke 14, and we were talking about this, uh, when Jesus is at the table with, I think, Simon the uh, Pharisee, and uh, this woman comes and starts anointing his... his uh, no, it's Luke 11. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Yeah. While he was speaking, a Pharisee invited him to dine with him. So he went and took the table. The Pharisee was amazed to see that he did not wash. And there's another thing. And then... Um, no, this is the one with the woman washing his... Uh, feet with her tears and drying them with her hair. And, I mean, you just couldn't do that. This woman's a prostitute. Any interaction with her uh, decreases from your status. Like, detracts from your status. And yet he's doing that. And I think we're called to do that. We're called to, you know, talk with people who are outcasts, to care for people who are marginalized. Yeah, and so in in that way, I would agree with Kyle in this in this like in his little vignette that closes the chapter is this lady that started a ministry to people in strip clubs, to dancers in strip clubs, which, you know, I don't know that that would be the best place for me to go to have a ministry, but it was <laughs> for this person. And I whole hundred percent respect that. Right. It's just that, yeah. So I agree with his principle that it could be that we are to go anywhere. I have absolutely no problem with that. But it's this twist at the end where, you know, you're not just going to get dirty. You're going to end up covered in Jesus' blood. Well, in other words, it's if you do it, it won't be easy and it won't be. In other words, I don't know. It's this whole irony of it's going to be really horrible, but it's going to be great at the same time. So yeah. don't avoid it because it will be horrible. And yeah, it doesn't work. Which, interestingly enough, kind of links back to a couple of stories earlier in the chapter that I'm really curious to get your input on, which is this whole notion that people followed, you know, people, quote, followed Jesus into really tough situations. So we have the story of these missionaries that went to Burma and, you know, they had amazing sickness and trial and tribulation and as a result atop of 180 there are 3700 congregations 
that can all trace their beginnings to when uh, these two people said to God, wherever God pointed to Burma and they, and said, what about there? And they went. And as a result, there's 3,700 congregations. I feel like underlying that. And I heard this, Oh, I heard this countless times in Christian university, you know, the great commission, which they like to, these real inspirational preachers like to refer to as the great omission, you know, that, that everybody is called to go unless you're called to stay. And, that huh? no, it doesn't sound fun. We're but we're all called to be missionaries and to to go out in the world. And the notion being that if we don't go out, and those people don't hear about God, they will go to hell and they won't be saved. And it'll essentially be our fault. So all that to say, the question I have here is the underlying message here. I think is if we don't follow Jesus, then good things won't happen in the world. Which then makes me think, well, so this is all up to us? And I'm not saying I don't have a responsibility to help and love those around me. I'm not trying to get out of it. But I start to get uncomfortable when I feel like it's built up like it was for me long ago and since in other places that it's all up to us. So mm-hmm. so if these two people had not become missionaries and gone to Burma... So God would have been left sitting on his hands and those 3,700 congregations would not have been created because those two people hadn't followed God. And like, like, doesn't that diminish who God is and how he works in the world? And that, like, I mean, really, if it was all up to us, we'd all be screwed, right? We would all be screwed, I think. <laughs> I'd definitely be screwed. So how do you look at a situation that's presented like this, like, you know, Jesus called these people, they quote, followed him, they did the right thing. And as a result, all these good things happened, which, and I feel like the the conclusion, which he doesn't quite say is, and if they hadn't gone, it wouldn't have happened. And good things would not have happened. Yeah. Or is there a third way and I'm missing it? Well, you see, I, I think part of the issue here with this, and, and this is an issue for me in my own life, um, very poignantly, is is a, is a is an overextension of responsibility. You know, and and a, and, a, and and I think I think um, I think it's a, also a misunderstanding and a vast uh, misjudgment. Uh, uh, an, an underappreciation of God's love for other people. So in other words, okay. So it's a I both and type deal. Yeah. Like 1813 going to Burma. Um, I, I don't know, you know, and I, I guess, I guess my hunch and I could be totally wrong on this, but my hunch is if, um, you knew from the beginning, like if I knew that I was going into, um, I don't know, Somalia, um, I guess I would ask myself, should I be going? What should I be doing? How could I be acting? Uh, if I'm going into a situation where there is some sort of a, um, a government that is completely, um, you know, ready at the drop of a hat to kill me, is that the best use of my life? Or should I be trying to help people get out of there? Should I be trying to, you know, if I, if I have some sort of particular interest and passion for these people, um, you know, 
fair enough on the one hand. On the other hand, there is such a thing as, um, and, and this has been part of my life for a long time. I'm just beginning to realize it. I mean, I really love God, and I think God deeply loves me, and I don't think I've got a very good sense of how to love myself. So I'm willing to do a lot of stuff and put up with a lot of crap because my image of myself is not very good. I'm just coming to realize that. You know, I do a lot. I, I eat well. I try to sleep well. I exercise. I do a lot of other things that, uh, on the surface, you know, and I don't have this, that, that, that sort of reflect a good self-image, and, and I don't think that I walk around with an overtly negative one. But when I look at some of the key ways in which I uh, engage with my world, and I do that in a Christian way, I'm really wondering if God's not saying, hey, Greg, do you really have to make it so hard on yourself? Do you really think I want that? Do you really? And who's paying for it, Greg? Who's responsible for it? Is it because all these other people can't make the right choices that you have to help them out that way? <laughs> really? Are you responsible for them, Greg? Right, and that's what I th- you I sound feel a like. Bit that's like me now, Greg. Are you like me? <laughs> and Are that's you like, yeah. <laughs> you know, and that's like bad news. It's like, oh, yeah, you're right. I've got a bit of a god complex. And I feel yeah. like in the Christian university I went to. And in other stuff I've listened to and, you know, been, I feel like kind of guilted into. Yes, it's this notion that we have to do it. Mm-hmm. And I, I like what you're saying about the different shades of responsibility. Yeah, we have, yeah, that's, I think that's really rich because, yeah, you can, Yes, we're responsible for certain things, but I find that for myself, when I take that responsibility too far, I get completely burned out, and then I have absolutely no, nothing to give. Exactly. And finding that fine line is super hard. Yeah, it and is. And I am the only person that can figure it out. Mm-hmm. A book cannot tell me. I'm the yeah. only one that can figure it out for myself. The other thing that strikes me, too, is this notion of, you know, oh, these these... I'm being a little sarcastic, but hopefully it fits. I mean, so these two missionaries went to Burma, and wow, you know, isn't that wonderful, the sacrifice they were willing to make because they were following God. Well, when I went to Labrie, oh gosh, it was like a long time ago now, um, 12, 15 years ago, I went because I had to go. Mm-hmm. And I had so many people say, oh, you are so brave. You're so brave. I wish I had that much courage to do what you're doing. Mm-hmm. There was no courage involved. There was exactly. no bravery. There was just, I'm going to go do this. I, I don't have any choice but not to. My life is not working out very well. And um, I don't see that it's going anywhere great. And so I got to find some other options. And this is the best, you know... This has the most optimistic outlook that I can find right now. So I'm going to go, I'm going to take it. Is it scary? Absolutely. But am I like following some calling or following Jesus by going to Labrie? I don't, maybe, but it's so easy to put all these other veneers on. I mean, your point about Labrie is, is, is just crucial. You know, other people are looking at this and saying how brave you are, and you're like, no, no, this is a, this is an absolute necessity. My, my existence depends on this, from what, from everything you could see. And I guess, yeah, I mean, we don't know about the people 
who went to Burma. We don't know what their orientation was. And the other thing that strikes me is it's a, it's a combination, I think, between your story about Labrie and Paul's story about preaching the gospel. Paul is constantly talking about, um, <clears throat> he's talking about the difficulties in order to say, you know, we count this as joy. We do, we, we do this, we go through this, we suffer through this for something that is, that is marvelous. You know, and as I've constantly said, as I've, as I've said ongoingly, you know, we have to take Paul's words as Paul's words, as the guy who was stopped on the Damascus Road, as the guy who should have been totally snuffed out. They, you know, talk about honor and shame and losing every single bit of honor you thought you had. Everything in, that, in Jewish society revolves around serving God, and God, God, God's self says to you, you know, why are you doing exactly the wrong thing? <laughs> there is no greater loss of face. And, and Paul had nothing. You know, at that point, it's like, kill me now. Just, just please, please, please kill me now. Please. D- do me a favor. And, and yet this guy who had everything stripped away from him, every semblance of like what he had, what he understood the world to be about what he understood to be right and good and honorable, totally reversed, everything reversed. And here he is talking about doing as much or more than I'm sure these people did in Burma. And you don't hear about, you know, like, why, why, why tell a story about something that sounds like what Paul did and leave out the most important parts? Why would you not talk about, like, if you don't know what these people's responses were, if you don't know about all the joyful situations, if you don't know about what was going on, why would you tell the story? Do you not think that Paul had a good reason for telling the story as he did? Do you not think that that meant something? And this is what I don't get. Like, if you're going to put it in here like this, you know, up at the top of page 178, you justify greed by calling it ambition. You rationalize dishonesty by calling it shrewd business. You stay quiet about your faith and call it, call it tolerance. Uh, you, you go out and, and, and uh, go to Burma as a missionary and, and call it loving others when it actually it's self-loathing behavior. You hate yourself, and so you're sticking yourself in the most intolerable situation you can find. Get out of that intolerable situation. You're, you're, you, you know, it, that, doesn't you, fit, that doesn't fit with his way of looking at things, though. I know it doesn't. <laughs> 180, 180 um, which it kind of follows on the end of the 3,700 congregations that can trace their beginnings to these two people. Um, I keep skipping over their names because I can't pronounce it. One of them is Adoniram and Ann Judson. Uh, so then it says, so then this is Kyle, uh, top of one... 80. This man in Luke 9 was happy to say wherever until God said there. One of the reasons we don't follow Jesus wherever is that when he says there, we take that more as a suggestion than a command. To which I to which I I question, I say, does does I don't know, I'm interested in this whole idea. Does God really call us to live at a certain address or go to a certain country or have a certain job or do a certain th- I used to think that I'm not so sure anymore a part of me just says just 
live your life as best you can, talk to God and consult him along the way, but does I don't know. I mean, doesn't that impede a little bit on our our free will and our decisions and well, it's such it's such a it's such an I mean, we have to be careful. I think every time we say God told me this, God told me that because then what you're doing is you're saying you know and typically people don't say god told me this and i didn't do it <laughs> like, god told me to do this and so i did it and so what you're doing is you're giving divine priority and authority to your action based on your interpretation of something you know and and you might be right but you might be wrong and knowing how to best assess your credibility as an interpreter of what God may be saying is crucial. And I never hear that talked about. I never hear people saying, God told me this. And the reason I think that God told that, 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 that I made the right call in interpreting it this way is this and laying out some points for some situations or whatever. Oh, okay. Well, that sounds, that sounds kind of credible. You know, the notion is typically in Christianity, if God says it, it's credible. But the only place God's saying anything is is the Bible, and and that you know there's there's interpretation there. You're not getting away from it. Right, right. Well, and it's this notion that, well, from Kyle, I feel like the notion is since it's from God, and when God tells, it's, it's it's basically don't argue with God. Just you know, God told Jonah to go to Nineveh, and God tells us to do certain things, so do it. So then I think this quote is somewhat fascinating. I'm curious your perspective on it. So. So continuing from where I was reading, one of the reasons we don't follow Jesus wherever is that when he says there, we take that more as a suggestion than a command. Which again, this whole notion that Jesus com- God commands us and we must do, which I, I don't, I'm a little conflicted on that. I think sometimes, yeah, we're supposed to do stuff. In other cases, I feel like it's been pushed too far. And I think this is kind of an example where... So anyway, Larry Larry Osborne points out that in many areas of our lives, we treat God like our personal consultant rather than the Lord of our lives. Now, Lord of our lives, I think, is a a big, very ambiguous phrase there that could mean any number of things. Probably a whole podcast, but we'll... We'll move on. Larry writes, Now, a consultant is someone whose wisdom we hi- we highly value and listen to, but at the end of the day, we make the final decision. That's why they're called consultants. Here's the problem. God doesn't do consulting. Never has, never will. He does God. When we treat him as a consultant, he simply stops showing up for the meetings. I totally disagree with that. I, I, I just... <laughs> It's a yep. head scratcher. It sounds really profound. Never has, never will. He does God. Well, don't exactly. we consult with God all the time? Yeah. And don't we don't make we as free humans make the decisions? It's up to us to decide. Mhm. Exactly. So I guess unless maybe you subscribe to the what I think is is more of a robot construct which is God commands we do. Mm-hmm. Um, God's pulling the strings. Yeah, though, does God tell us to do certain things and we should do them, like loving our neighbors ourselves? Absolutely, but to uh, I don't, I don't think God ever stops showing up. God doesn't come to the meetings. Like, come on, that's kind of. I'm sure it's kind of tongue in cheek, but no, I think that's that's profound. Um, God stops showing up. I mean, you're right. That's that's. 
That's from Larry Osborne's book, A Contrarian's Guide to Knowing God, page 75, for those that are interested. Yeah, you know, I, I this to me feels like a party thrown by people about God, thrown by people who don't really care about themselves very much and who don't understand what it means to be loved by God. I mean, for me, part of what's going on in my life is that there are all of the things that I have held are getting turned on their heads because this notion of me being loved by God and the, the, the reciprocal part of that is that I am lovable and I need to love myself and the part, the areas of my life, which are many, where I'm doing that in wrong ways are getting just shoved right to the surface. It's not, I can't avoid it. It's happening in my marriage. You know, it's, it's huge. And so the, these ideas, like, you know, uh, God doesn't do consulting, you know, as, as if to say God, God wants to make the calls. I don't, I don't think God wants to make the calls. I think God wants to, God is constantly wooing us. God is constantly drawing us, constantly trying to persuade us to move in the right direction. But he's doing, God's doing that by virtue of the fact that, that we love God. God loves us. There's a love relationship there. I'm drawn. You know, it's not, it's not somebody laying stuff out on the table. Like this whole idea of the consultant and the meeting and all this other stuff, like that's just not happening. The, 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 what we have in the New Testament is like these festive meals, these feasts and gatherings, these, these like wonderful situations, right? And these people are poor and they've got crap happening in their lives and all these other things. But, but none of that appears in here. I don't see any 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 uh, joy, you know, in the whole you know point that we have made all the way through that love and loving God and being loved by God just doesn't appear. I mean, that's a huge criticism. Well, as I'm rereading this too, he says we treat God like our personal consultant rather than the Lord of our lives. I think I'm assuming here that when he says Lord of our lives, it's back to the sovereign idea. Mm-hmm. God says to do it, we must do it. Yeah, and we've com- he's completely left out this idea that, you know, if God is the Lord of my life, how is God um, my parent and my, my father? You know, I remember posing the question in a church, and uh, I've, only, I've only had this, this opportunity once, and it was very interesting because I said, you know, servants offer service. A good servant is obedient and does the job. Well, what do, what do children offer to their parents? What makes for a good child? You know, and a couple of people packed up right away and they're like, obedience. I'm like, okay, do you not see a problem with that? Are your children servants? Could you essentially swap your children for a servant? You know, and hopefully it doesn't take people more than a couple of heartbeats if they're really if they're really uh, emotionally engaged with the question to realize no i would not swap my child for anyone well why is that and what happens to you when your child is not obedient you're frustrated you're angry you're hurt but with any parents they don't love their child in a relationship that turns on love, what makes the relationship work? 
love. You either do or you don't. You know, and we act upon it, right? But this is this is, I guess, for me, what is a huge issue is that we, in many parts of Christianity, love is a subset of the will. What I mean in plain language is our choices control what we love. We can choose to love or choose not to love. And uh, you know, you know that's a lie as soon as you have the merest thought of your child being in danger. You know, it's not a choice as to whether you're going to go in. <laughs> the choice is not. There is no choice. Right? <laughs> you just do. Right? You just do. You just do. You know, why did you do that? Why did you? Why did you shove your your child out of the way of that car and look at you? You got clipped by the car. It wasn't a very smart. It wasn't a very smart thing to do. You know, it's like, well, that wasn't a choice that I made. It wasn't. It wasn't. A, I didn't. I didn't sort of make that as a choice. I'm. I'm in that relationship, and I'm compelled by virtue of that relationship to act. That's what it is. That's what it is to love. Thanks for listening to the Untangling Christianity podcast. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode. So leave a comment on the website at untanglingchristianity.com slash 28. If you'd like to be notified by email when new episodes are released or other news, subscribe to our mailing list, also available in the right sidebar of the website. We welcome your questions, comments, or suggested future discussion topics by email. Send those to feedback at untanglingchristianity.com. Music on this podcast is made possible by Kevin McLeod over at incompetech.com and is licensed under a Creative Commons license. Tune in next week for a new episode.